นโมทัสสะบุคควะทัวอรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคควะทัวอรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคควะทัวอรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังนัมวังสังฆังนัมสังเทกซ์ที่ผมอยากจะคอมเมนต์ในวันนี้คือเอกสารจากบทเรียนที่อาจารย์ชาวิสรู้ทั้งหมดจากประสบการณ์ตัวเองของการเริ่มต้นการเริ่มต้นและเริ่มต้นการเริ่มต้นการเริ่มต้นการเริ่มต้นการเริ่มต้นการเริ่มต้นการเริ่มต้นการเริ่มต้นการเริ่มต้นการเริ่มต้นการเริ่มต้นการเริ่มต้นการเริ่มต้นการเริ่มต้นการเริ่มต้นการเริ่มต้นการเริ่มต้นการเริ่มต้นการเริ่มต้นการ Tasks that uh, Ajahn Sumato would be faced with in trying to set up a monastery over here, and also he had heard bits and pieces from people who had been here to visit and gone back to Thailand. So anyway, by way of support, he wrote this letter, which was not like Ajahn Chah at all to write letters, but he did write this letter to Ajahn Sumato, and uh, part of it said in there uh, said. Whenever you have thoughts and feelings of love and hate for anything whatsoever, these will be your aids and and partners in building barami. And the Buddha Dhamma is not to be found by moving forward or moving back or standing still. This samato is your place of non-abiding. Just that much. And whenever you have feelings of love and hate for anything whatsoever, then this is going to help your practice. And the word "barami" is a Thai rendering of the Pali word "paramita," which usually translates as as perfections, um, but I think of it as forces of goodness or. Or spiritual vectors, if you like, these forces that we engage in the path of spiritual transformation. And so Ajahn Chah's encouragement was: whenever you have thoughts or feelings of love or hate for anything whatsoever, don't see these as obstructions. Rather, see these as your aids and partners to view these as. Aids and partners in building the forces of goodness, building the spiritual power. And so it seems to me, as we begin the new year, it's a, a useful contemplation. I mean, we have our goals for practice. We, we have aspirations. We have ideals that we'd like to realize, and perhaps we've been focusing on these ideals for a long time. But what is it that what is it that means we realize these goals, or we don't realize these goals? Yeah. So the tradition has it that the Buddha spent many, many lifetimes perfecting these ten, the ten paramis or ten paramita. These ten spiritual forces. He spent many, many lifetimes perfecting these, so that when the time came right, he not only uh, was he ready to realize, but he was able to realize dhamma for himself without anybody else pointing it out to him, which is uh, which is unique. Uh, beings can be enlightened, but uh, generally it's because they've heard teachings from wise, enlightened beings. But The Buddha had made this determination to to realize liberation for himself and for the sake of all beings, and so he perfected these these paramita. This is how the tradition teaches it, and uh, and certainly it's worth thinking about. And, and as we look at our own spiritual practice, and we go through the year. I have I, I find this list of of ten parami, these ten forces of goodness, 
are really useful to contemplate and to see where there's a deficit, if you like, where our practice is, is not balanced or practice is not in harmony. Sometimes you can think, well, what should I be doing now yeah. in my practice? I don't know what I should be developing. and yeah. Whatever our situation, whether it's being the abbot of a spiritual community or a new member of a spiritual community or a householder or yeah, a partner or a parent, or, yeah. from time to time there's going to be the, the questions going to come up. What do I need to develop now? Well, I think it's wise to prepare ourselves with the, this list of virtues that the Buddha highlighted as, as forces that pertain to the path of liberation. In fact, I think um, for the rest of this year, I think I shall take one of these uh, ten each month uh, to reflect on at the first Sunday of the month. I'll give my talk on one of these. But I'd like this evening to just go through them first, just to, to bring them up on the screen, so to speak, so that we, we have them in our minds. And to, to, to consider that this is, in terms of Ajahn Chah's encouragement to Ajahn Sumato, to see whenever we have thoughts of love and hate, or feelings of love or hate, not to see them as obstructions. It's very easy to get caught in, in feeling, oh, this liking or this disliking is a problem. In other words, we make problems. We make problems out of things. And the Buddhist uh, teaching, and Ajahn Chah's encouragement, we don't have to do that. We don't have to make problems out of things. But if we change, if we shift the way we see things, then instead of creating a problem out of something, we can turn it around. And that's, as Ajahn Chah was saying, see these as your aids and partners in building the power, building these forces. It's like if you want to improve your game of tennis, you get somebody who's better than you, Right? or you want to improve your game of chess, you get somebody who plays better than you. You don't get somebody who you know you can beat. And so likewise, when, we, when we're faced with, with difficulties, whether it's difficulties involving loving or hating, liking or disliking, to have the view that we can use these to support cultivating the, the forces of goodness, the, the perfections, the ten paramis. So to have these in our hearts and minds as we enter into the new year, and uh, so just like to go through these. The first one is um, dana parami or generosity, and certainly involved in developing anything, any any project that we're involved with. If we approach it from merely from the perspective of what can I get out of it, or what's in it for me, then it really is a chore. It always checking to see you know, what we're getting out of it. Whereas if we have the, the spirit of generosity alive within us, if the spirit of generosity, if we know how to give, if we know how to offer, if we know how to uh, let go of the intense grasping at self, at me and my way, if we have a feeling for that, or we have a feeling for the benefit of that, well, then we can give ourselves into the task much easier. As, as we all know, Ajahn Sumedha has retired to go back and, and live in Thailand. And I lived with him in the early, very early years of, of Chithurst, where we only had one monastery before Devon started, and here, and Amrawati, and Switzerland, Italy, and all these other monasteries started. And we all lived together. And it was a huge amount of work. We would, often we would be working 12 hours a day, six days a week. And there was this wonderful spirit of generosity. Everybody was willing to offer themselves into the task. Now, we can't offer ourselves into the task if we've got a commitment to me. If our commitment to me is, is something we're really holding on to, then it inhibits us. And so it's something that we can actually train in. And so training in, in generosity. When, even, when we, even when we feel disinclined, to be generous, to find a way of encouraging that. Yeah. I think I spoke about this recently. Uh, I think we're uh, talking about how sometimes people don't want to make offerings because they feel their motivation is not totally pure. 
say, oh, I, you know, I'm, so I'm, I'm making this offering because I want to get something back. Well, that might be true. In fact, probably most of the time, to some degree, our motivations are mixed up with something not totally wholesome. But in any moment of giving, there's going to be some amount of generosity. There's some amount of letting go. And so sometimes we need to quick start the process of generosity by just encouraging ourselves to give. And then the second one is, uh, is Sila Parami. Dana Parami, Sila Parami, and Sila Parami or integrity or morality. And, and we don't have to... We don't have to think very far before we realize what happens when we compromise integrity. And the, perhaps the traditional approach for many of the religions of the world with regards to morality is to set a standard that is, says that if you step outside this, then there's going to be serious consequences. You, you know, you, you'll go to hell or, or whatever. I was, I was speaking this morning to the Sri Lankan community who, who were here and... Uh, and we were talking about cultivating right speech, and I was saying how sometimes wrong words slip out of my mouth, and I, I tend to think that it's all because of my grandmother, who she washed my mouth out with soap when I was, when I was about 10 years old. And uh, it didn't do the job at all. It didn't help me. It actually hindered me. It made me, my speech get worse. And I only said the word blast. It wasn't as if I said anything really naughty. And, uh, but in her reading, that blast was a, a very serious swear word. And um, and so she stuck this bar of Knight's Castile soap in my mouth, and and um, it didn't help at all because that encouragement for cultivating integrity and discipline uh, was not done with with mindfulness, with kindness, and and so the Buddha's encouragement for keeping the five precepts of, as householders, or eight precepts, or ten precepts, or two hundred twenty-seven, or however many precepts we keep, the precepts are seen as guidelines. These precepts are there to, to give us a frame of reference. Not because you know, we, we, we're never ever going to break any of them. Of course, we try not to. We determine not to break any of them. That's our effort. But it's not because any external agent out there judging us if we compromise them. But rather, it gives us a frame of reference. We know when we go up against the precept, when we hit the precept, you know, or we've, we've transgressed the precept, then we know if we take our precepts seriously, you know, like the precept on not lying, you know, the, the standards of the society we live in is, well, basically, you just do what you can get away with, really. That's the kind of general standard. And, and that includes you know, telling porkies here and there and until it tends to become a, a real habit. And, uh, and then you find you're even lying to your closest friends, and that's really regrettable. And then, of course, if you're lying to other people, well, then it's bound to be you're lying to yourself. So there's no way that we're going to progress on a spiritual path if we have a habit of intentional lying or conscious lying. So recognizing that these are the standards that the Buddha set up for training are just that, the standards, so that we have a frame of reference so we can see. You know, like the, the taking what's not given or stealing. If you determine, they say, undertake the training to refrain from taking it which is not given. And so then when there's the impulse to do something that's, you know, like take something that's not given, even if other people around you are doing it, you've got this, something comes up and says, no, I, I determined to not do that. And so we've got, we've got an encouragement to reflect on it. And, and I, I know a number of people who in their daily life practice, professional people who over the years have, perhaps when they were a bit younger, they did lots of meditation retreats and got very enthusiastic about the spiritual life and, and made all sorts of determinations about what they're going to do with their life, but then along came a partner, and then the next thing there's loads of kids, and the meditation isn't happening anymore. But what is happening, and what they use as their frame of reference, is a sincere, conscious commitment to the five precepts. And if, so if we take our precept training seriously, what it does is it, <clears throat> it encourages us to, to always be looking at our intention. Now this is the point, that... When we, when we know our intention, then we can take responsibility for our actions. If we don't know our intention, then we can't really take responsibility for our actions. So knowing our own hearts, knowing our own minds is, uh, is work. But the precept, um, precept training is a way of helping us do that. 
Uh, we can talk about changing our actions, but if we don't know our motivation, if we don't know what's behind our actions, well then it's very, very difficult. Uh, we know the situation in the world is very difficult. There's all sorts of seriously unpleasant and unfortunate things going on, and we'd like to change them. But sometimes people are spending too much time looking outside, trying to change things outside, having different policy, different structure, different government, different set of, of guidelines, whatever. But they're not really looking at what's behind the way we engage. Even if you've got the best guidelines, you've got the best structures, you've got the best government, if we haven't got the right motivation, then it's not going to work. I was very pleased to see that... Uh, his Highness uh, Prince Charles um, in his new book, Harmony, that he's put out, where he very uh, convincingly uh, argues for how to uh, change the way we view the world. And very early on in this book, he talks about how we're not going to have right action if we don't have right thought, very specifically. That we're not going to have right action if we can't have right thought. And to have right thought, we've got to actually pay attention to another dimension of our being. And in quite a bit of the book he's, he's arguing against the addiction or the, the obsession that we have in, in Western culture anyway with um, empirical proof. You know, the scientific model is the only thing that carries any weight. And uh, he argues that that's a very limited uh, way of viewing life and certainly I would agree with him on that. So we can use our precept training. Uh, if we use it wisely and skillfully, what it does is it brings our attention inward so that we get to see our motivation. You know, somebody accuses you of taking something you know, that, that you weren't supposed to have. You say, oh, you stole that. I said, well, no, I didn't. Say, yes, you did. Well, maybe it wasn't yours, maybe, but maybe you thought it was. Well, if you don't know your own mind, then you can't let go of it. You, basically, whatever somebody else thinks about us matters more than what we think. You know, so this can be a, a source of, of real embarrassment and, and pain in life where we don't know for ourselves, our own heart and mind. Uh, I think it was, was New Year's Day, I think I, I, I gave a talk, or sometime recently I gave a talk about, about being your own refuge, knowing your own heart and mind, and what a, what a rare refuge that is. And so our precept training can help us with that. Then the third parami is uh, nekama parami, or, or uh, renunciation, the cultivation of renunciation. This morning I listened to a very inspiring Dhamma talk by Ajahn Kemasiri, where uh, some of you will remember uh, he lived here when he was a, a junior monk and did a lot of the work of building this place, including laying this beautiful oak floor that we have here. And well now Ajahn Kemasiri is the abbot of Dhammapala Monastery in Switzerland. And he was teaching a retreat in France and uh, I was listening to this Dhamma talk that he gave and it was about... Renunciation, and he was pointing out that that uh, the essence of renunciation is the ability we have to let go of our obsession with self. You know, sometimes when we talk about renunciation, people think about all the things we're going to have to give up. We're going to have to give up chocolate at Lent, or you know, we're going to have to give up whatever these things that we like. And well, the things that we give up, those are not really the point. That was. Um, Ajahn Kemasiri was arguing this very, very skillfully, how we don't want to emphasize the techniques or the forms of the things that we give up. They have their place, of course, that's relevant. But the point of doing that practice is to move towards increased skill on the heart level to be able to let go of me and my way. You know, that's what we need to really renounce because we're so obsessed with it. You know, somebody blames us for something that's not true. And, well, that's their problem. Unless we take it very seriously. I have been blamed. Well, where, where did that come from? I have been criticised. Where did that come from? If, if we know that we're free from blame, that we didn't do anything, what are we upset about? Yeah. Or somebody praises us and tells us how wonderful we are and, and then we get all puffed up and, 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 and overly pleased with ourselves. And, and uh, where did that come from? If somebody wants to praise us, well, if it's true, well, we notice it, okay. But we don't have to, we don't have to feed on it. Well, the tendency to feed on these things comes with an obsession, 
with me and my way. Well, the, uh, the spiritual disciplines encourage us to work towards cultivating that ability to release out of that. And so renunciation, that's what renunciation is about. So we don't want to see renunciation as a moral judgment about something. Like when people take on the eight precepts, for instance, and, and say, I undertake the train to refrain from, from uh, singing and dancing and listening to music and, and having a good time or whatever. Uh, that's not because you know, dancing is necessarily you know, grossly immoral or unskillful or listening to music is, is, is a serious obstruction to the spiritual life, but that we choose to let go of those things that are unnecessary you know, listening to music, singing and dancing are not necessary for purification of the way, but we like them. But we like them. And our attachment to them, our being biased towards them, our loving them, actually creates a problem for us. And so as a practice, we choose to learn to let go of them. We choose to learn to let go of them <clears throat> as an act of renunciation. And so, but that's not a moral judgment of them per se. And as we do that, little by little, if we do it mindfully and skillfully, carefully, we find this increased ability inwardly to let go of the habits. Those habits that we really would like to let go of, but we find so difficult. So then the fourth one is Aditana Barami, or the uh, determination, uh, cultivating the force of determination or resolve. On our way into town the other day, um, in the car, we went, uh, we went past... Uh, a, um, a bus shelter and I saw this huge big poster advertising a new movie I think it's called 128 Days I think that's what it's called anyway when I asked about it it's about this this young man you might have heard in America who who went walking out in uh, out in the desert and and uh, very heedlessly didn't tell anybody where he was going and uh he was navigating, I think, if I remember right, he was negotiating down a ravine and he slipped and fell and dislodged this boulder. This big boulder came tumbling down and, and pinned his arm to the wall. So there he is, stuck down this ravine, out in the middle of nowhere, absolutely nowhere, with, I think, one litre of water. Maybe he had a piece of chocolate, I don't know. With his arm pinned to this wall. Huge big boulder. He tried everything. No way could he move it. What he did to get out took a lot of resolve, a lot of determination, a lot of patience, a lot of energy, but I think remarkable resolve, this determination to keep going, to, I can do this, I can do this. He didn't give up. It could, he could have given up. He could have just said, oh, well, it's my come or whatever, and just sort of you know, fall back and pathetic sort of resignation and die. But he didn't do this. He said, no, I can do this. There's a way out of this. And so he kept looking at all the options, until he found that he did have a pocket knife. And so he started hacking his arm off, which, of course, um, as you can imagine, was uh, pretty gruesome. And, um, but the knife was very blunt, and he didn't get very far before he was faced with the bone. And, um, but because he had this resolve, this determination, he kept at it. And what happened was this resolve and various other factors, whoever knows what else was involved, uh, came together and he realized he could lever himself using the boulder and to throw his body in a way whereby he could snap the bone, break the bone, and he did just that. And he walked out. He walked out and survived. I think it's a, a wonderful testament to, um, to Aditana uh, Parami or, or the resolve, uh, the force of resolution or determination. And this is something that, that really is worth cultivating. Again, we're so comfortable in our present circumstance. We have, yes, there's a, there's a stressful economic environment in, in, in this country at the moment, but still, compared to most people on the planet, we are very, very fortunate. We, and, and the comfort and convenience of our lives can make us complacent. I was just... Um, another talk I was listening to, actually I was reading recently, was... Um, about uh, the abbot of uh, the monastery in New Zealand, Ajahn Chandiko. And, well, there are two actually. There's also Ajahn Kawesiko, a Japanese monk who ordained about the same time as I did with Ajahn Chah. He is an abbot of, uh, of a monastery out at Kanchanaburi in uh, Thailand, central Thailand, or western Thailand. And they were talking about taking on these Dutanga practices. 
which is the renunciate practices. But what happens is when you take on these austerities, like Ajahn Kuesiko, when he was in Japan, he was just walking to Hiroshima. And no money, of course, and, and no plans, nothing. He just walked in. Sometimes he'd sleep in car parks, sometimes he'd sleep under a bridge, whatever. He was really challenging that, that uh, relationship of convenience. Or well, Rajan Chandiko, and likewise in New Zealand, uh, on this uh, Tudong that he and his friend went on in the west coast of South Island, New Zealand, without any plans, without any food, just to go walking and to see how they could manage and to trust that things would work out. And it's very difficult. When you're not getting the comfort that you're used to, what happens? What happens? Well, anxiety starts to come up. Am I going to get enough to eat today? Actually, quite frankly, you you could probably go 10 days at least without worrying about food. Water, of course, is a bit of an issue, but usually we can find, unless you're pinned to a rock in the middle of the desert where... Water is hard to come by, but in most cases we can find water. So what these monks were doing by taking on these practices was choosing to engage in the tendency we have to get overly comfortable. The encouragement to not become complacent, not take our good fortune for granted. If you read the scriptures, the Buddha was over and over again holding up images of... of, uh, uh, things like, our, well, the fact that we're all going to die. You know, you know, people read about what the Buddha said about this and think he must have been a really miserable sort of fellow, but not, that's not the case at all. That rather because of our complacency, we act as if we're dead already. You know, we, we, if you walk down High Street, the High Street in any city, and you see you know, people have got plenty of money, uh, certainly more than they, they need, they're not, they're not desperately poor, and yet are they happy? So where does the unhappiness come from? Where does that blank look on people's faces come from? That dead look come from? It comes from a a lack of vitality, a lack of determination, a lack of perspective. And so these spiritual virtues, in this case determination, is something really worth cultivating. The way we cultivate it is by by just choosing to encourage ourselves. Sometimes you say, Oh, I can't be bothered today. You want to watch out for that. So if you're determined to meditate, you're going to, I'm going to sit meditation 40 minutes a day or 20 minutes, whatever, 20 minutes a day. And I recommend six days a week. So you let yourself have one day when you don't have to. Unless you really, really love it, in which case that's fine. But when you're starting out with meditation, give yourself one day a week. But the other six days, just do it. Or an exercise routine. To get in the habit of an exercise routine, something that that keeps us fit. We've got the National Health in this country, National Health Service, which is great, I'm all for it, but it can also make people very lazy. People think, oh, if I get sick, I'll go and see the doctor. Well, what about actually taking responsibility for ourselves? What about doing what we need to do to keep ourselves healthy? What about actually determining that every day I'm going to do at least 10 minutes exercises? so long as we do it every day or six days a week. So determination is something also really worth working on. And then the fifth one is um, discernment or wisdom, the virtue of wisdom. When I think about this, I think the, the, it's interesting to note that all the words, so many of the words that we have in our language that have to do with virtue are are used in the pejorative. Even the word virtue is often used in kind of a negative sense. But I don't ever remember anybody using the word wisdom in the pejorative. I mean, wisdom is something that we really treasure, we really value. But what do we think it is? <clears throat> what do we think wisdom is? Or discernment, right discernment? What is our own sense of it? Not, not like, oh, wisdom is something that somebody else has got. But what do we think it is? And to consider that for ourselves, to actually exercise the discernment faculty, to consider what is discernment. When I think about it, I, my, my feeling about it is that it's, I see it as a wise way of seeing. Discernment or wisdom is a wise way of seeing, a way of seeing that sees through the stories. It's like these veils or stories, these uh, 
illusions we have about life, like the fact that we're going to live forever. You know, that's why we get so shocked when we get a we get a terminal prognosis. We get shocked. I mean, I'm going to die, or well, somebody else dies, and you think this is this shouldn't happen. It just should never happen. Well, have you ever known anybody who never died? I mean, there's never, ever, ever, ever been somebody born who didn't die ever. And there's been billions and billions and billions of people born, and every single one of them has died. And yet still, we get surprised when people die, and as if it shouldn't happen. You know, well, I would say that's pretty much a lack of wisdom. That's, like, that's not seeing through the story. Or that sickness is something going wrong. You know, sickness is maybe something imbalanced, but to get indignant about sickness. I, I notice this myself. I tend to get indignant when I get sick, as if, as if somebody's failed me. I try to work with it, but I, I, I do find it testing I, when I get sick. It's some, somehow somebody's failed me or I've failed me. I, I should have taken more vitamins. Well, sometimes you just get sick. That's all there is to it. It's normal, actually, to get sick. It's absolutely normal. Guaranteed that if you're born, at some stage you're going to get sick. <clears throat> we have these sensitive organisms. There's all these viruses floating around. Somebody sneezes near you, and the next thing you know, you're sneezing. Well, you... That doesn't mean to say you failed, but we can do that. You know. Or you get a cancerous tumour. You know, tragically, people these days, sometimes the new age way of thinking, people get feel very guilty because they got sick. You know. Oh, if I wasn't thinking bad thoughts, I wouldn't have gotten cancer or some sort of thing. Well, there, there can be definitely some validity in thinking about the law of karma and sickness. But to come on heavy with ourselves or with other people and say that every time you get sick it's a sign of your bad karma, that is certainly not what the Buddha taught. A very uncompassionate and I would say very unskillful way of thinking. Getting born, you're going to get sick. It's not necessarily something going wrong. This wrong is something that we impose on, on experience. And, and so as I have my own contemplation on discernment or, or wise thinking is to that way of thinking or that kind of awareness, that what, what the Buddha called truth-discerning awareness, satipanya. We've got common and garden variety awareness, but we need to work on it till it's truth-discerning awareness. When there's truth-discerning awareness, that's wisdom in my books. And we can work on that. And the way we work on it, as you've heard me say many, many times, one of the most fundamental ways of working on it, is to see where our, our awareness is biased towards judging. You know, just to see, can we yet, are we able yet to fall back into a space that is not judging, that just sees when something disagreeable arises, like a feeling of disliking arises? Can we be still as disliking is there? Or do we have to become that? Disliking, is it's so, even though it's an unpleasant thing, we can get pulled into it. One of the reasons we get pulled into it is because when liking arises, it's so attractive. It's just just you know, what is it? Some like a cream cake or something that's just so, so delicious looking, so absolutely ultimately yummy looking that we we, we grab it and then oh that's great for a while until the next thing something disliking comes along and we can't help but grab that. And that's the way it is. When you grab dislike when you grab liking you grab disliking. When we grab love, we grab hate. It's the same thing. We grab at pleasure, we grab at pain. We grab at any feeling, we grab at all feelings. And so wisdom, in my books, wisdom is where we have that, or one of the, one of the, one of the aspects of training in wisdom is that, or right discernment is that ability to stay still. Stay still when there's a movement in the mind. Stay still when there's liking or disliking. In the impulse to resent, to stay still and feel that, feel that impulse, feel that tendency of the mind to get upset, that tendency to resent, yeah. that tendency to want things to be other than the way they are, but not move on it. No judgment. No judgment. We don't have to judge what's going on, including the tendency to be judging. The judging mind is so all-pervading. And so we can be sitting there and the the tendency to judge comes up. Can we just see it? Oh, judging mind. Judging mind is just so. We don't have to move to try and get rid of the judging mind. We don't have to move to follow the judging mind, potentially. 
And then, uh, and then energy, energy, virya, uh, spiritual energy, not just necessarily physical energy. There's a virtue that we, we can cultivate. That uh, sometimes the again with saying determination, determination and energy go together very much. Uh, sometimes you just feel so. Oh, I can't be bothered, and you know, I, you know, I just tired of getting up and meditating. Well, maybe we are, but but there is some value in really encouraging ourselves to make the effort, even when we don't want to. Not some forceful, not some forceful, egotistical, heroic effort, but a mindful, a mindful, considerate recognition that we need to go against the tendencies of laziness. That, that this, it's, it's so easy just to sink into a comfortable chair and put our feet up and take it easy. But when the really difficult mind states come up, you know, resentment, like if somebody's abused us, somebody's, somebody's really betrayed us, and the tendency of the heart to, to get pulled into bitterness, the tendency to just get pulled into resentment and to get sucked into this vortex. Yet again, this vortex of of resentment and bitterness and, and being, feeling hard done by. And we know the teachings. We know that potentially we shouldn't be doing this. We know we, we don't want to do it. We, ideally, we shouldn't be doing it. But just saying we shouldn't do it, that's not good enough, is it? What is it that means we can't, we can't actually bring ourselves to look at it in a way to really see it as it is, yeah. for what it is, as a movement of mind, that we don't have to move on. What, why, can't, why, why, why can't we do that? Well, often it's just a lack of energy. We don't have the energy. We don't have the, the, that momentum towards truth. We don't have cultivated inclination enough. It's so hard to talk about these things without sounding preachy. Somebody told me recently that when I give Dhamma talks, I sound evangelical. And so I'm being very, very cautious to not sound evangelical. But sometimes you just got to really, you know, just really get a little bit heavy on yourself. <laughs> you know, start bashing a book soon. <laughs> but with energy, you know, like I remember when we were young monks living together in Thailand, and Ajahn Sumato used to get us up in the morning at three o'clock. We'd get up in the morning at three o'clock and we'd do an hour yoga before morning chanting. We'd go, that's before morning chanting at four o'clock. We'd do an hour yoga together. And it was so good to do that. But I needed to really be encouraged. I was encouraged by actually a sense of shame that everybody else was doing it and I didn't want to be the piker. I didn't want to be the one that was the, you know, the hopeless case. I, I did and that, you know, I, I just didn't want to be the one left. So I really made myself do it. And I'm pleased that I did that. I'm pleased that I made myself do it. You know, there's a lot of great teachings around. You can listen to you know, some of the Advaita Vedanta teachings where you just don't have to do anything. I think a lot of that is wrong view and, and is really undermining of the effort that's sometimes needed. Sometimes we just got to give ourselves a kick in the pants, and even if we don't want to. Now, the difference between doing it egotistically and heroically or unkindly is have we got mindfulness or not? Are we reflecting on what we're doing as we're doing this? Or are we doing it with some vision of ourselves becoming spiritual? You'll notice when Ajahn Chah gave this teaching, he also said, he's also talking to Ajahn Smith about this is your place of non-abiding, which we'll touch on in a minute. Yeah. We're not cultivating these perfections, these parami, so as to become spiritual, but rather we're, we're cultivating these forces, these vectors of the spiritual life because they support letting go of me and my way. And the next one is patience, patient endurance. Patient endurance, which is that even when you do have energy, even when you do have a commitment to integrity, even when you have got generosity, even when you have got determination, even when you have got renunciation, even when you have got some truth discerning awareness going, sometimes some conditions just don't budge. You know, some painful memories that, that something that happened, something you did or something somebody else did, it's just lodged there. And none of your fancy tricks, none of your spiritual techniques make any difference at all. But there's one that does make a difference makes a big difference, and that is patient endurance. And patient endurance has to be recognized as being very, very different 
from bitter endurance. Bitter endurance, which I tried cultivating for quite a number of years, actually, did me no good at all. By the end of it, I weighed nine and a half stone, which is not very good. I'm supposed to weigh 11 and a half. But my bitterness, my resentment, you know, you've got to endure, got to endure. That's what this forest tradition is all about. Autun is the Thai word. Really great meditation masters say, you've got to autun, you know, the kind of rugged old leathery fellows that they are. They're going to, you know, Buddha is going to sit there till my bones break and my blood dries up. And you've got to autun, you've got to endure. And so I was doing it, but... Unfortunately, I, I got my, my lack of skill with the language or whatever, but I, I didn't get the, you know, the patient endurance bit. You know, and I was doing this bitter endurance thing, which really, actually, I'm not sure it did me much good at all. <laughs> but patient endurance, I'm a great advocate of that. Patient endurance. Patient endurance is, is a very peaceful quality. Although I don't travel on airplanes these days, I can remember what it was like on those long-haul flights when you've been on them for... 10 hours and you've still got another two or three hours to go and it's just so tedious I could never sleep on aeroplanes I would certainly not sleep very well and you just sit there and it's just such an unpleasant thing to have to put up with it's the smell of people and <laughs> you know these carnivores and whatever all around you getting drunk and carrying on and the whole thing is so <laughs> disagreeable but what are you going to do with it what are you going to do jump up and down and scream or you know, be an embarrassment or you're going to get nasty and dwell on horrible thoughts about people. Or, can you just say, actually, this is the absolute perfect circumstance for cultivating what the Buddha praised as the ultimate, he said, it's the ultimate incinerator of the defilements. That's Ajahn Jayasara's translation. The ultimate incinerator. This is what burns up this is what burns up patient endurance. It's, it's, he didn't say it's just a good one. It's, it's ultimate uh, for burning up the, the attachments that we have. And it just doesn't get any encouragement in our culture, our society at all. I mean, who's patient? You know, you're a wimp if you're patient. You shouldn't be patient with anybody. You shouldn't be patient with the doctor. You should get up there and demand, I want to see the doctor now. You shouldn't be patient with your lawyer. You get on the phone and tell him to get on with the job. Uh, don't be patient with the politicians, you know. I want it now. I want it sorted. Well, there is a place for determination. We've talked about that. There's a place for energy. We've talked about that. But there's also a really profoundly important place for patient endurance. That willingness to bear with patiently, peacefully. A peaceful willingness to bear with things as they are. The northeast of Thailand is a very good place for doing that. The weather is so hot there. Or actually even... I've heard, I was talking to somebody recently, even the west of Australia, 36 degrees. It would really be intolerable. And, and, but it's a good situation sometimes to be in when you're in these situations that are physically uncomfortable or you've just got the cold, you've got a runny nose and you've got a headache and you've taken a couple of paracetamol, you've done what you can do, drinking some lemon juice and some honey. And, well, sometimes you've just got to bear with it. You can go to the doctor and demand some antibiotics, but if you've got a virus, it's not going to do you any good. You you just say, go away and drink plenty of water and cultivate patient endurance. If he's a good doctor, that's what he'll prescribe. And so then the next one, I think we're up to whatever it is, number eight, I think now, is um, honesty, satya. Being really straight, really straight to this, to identify this, to really identify this, because we can think like, oh, I keep my five precepts or ten precepts or whatever, I keep them good enough. But does that mean that we're really straight? Does that mean we're really honest? You know, because there's still, even keeping the precepts, you can still get pretty manipulative. You know, like the way we, we butter people up. And you know, I know sometimes when I give Dhamma talks, I don't want to say anything unpleasant to people because I don't want them to dislike me. Now that's actually not such a... If it's such a parami, you, you just say what is needed according to time and place. You act as is appropriate according to time and place. And so to identify that as, as, as a virtue really worth cultivating, such a honesty, you know, to be really, really honest and really straight in our dealings. And then loving kindness, number nine. Not just towards others, but also towards ourselves. Which no matter how many times we've heard it, as with patient endurance, as with all these other ones, we do need to remind ourselves 
And again, if we've got these ten virtues listed in our minds, we've got them memorized and they're there, they're clear in our minds, well then when you're struggling over something, you just turn to them and say, well, you know, do I need to make more effort? Do I need to be more straight? Do I need to have more patience? No, actually what I need, I just need to be really kind to myself. That's what I need. I need to run a nice hot bath and just soak and relax. I've just been seriously beaten up by a very abusive boss and I'm feeling psychically bruised right now. I haven't, by the way. That didn't happen to me, but sometimes this sort of thing happens. And what you need is not to be heroic. Maybe you don't even need to go and sit upright and meditate and get over feeling bruised. Maybe what you need is just to be very kind to yourself. You know, if you've been on the receiving end of somebody else's uh, pain and suffering. Mm. So kindness is really important towards oneself and others. And then the last of the ten, which often comes last in the Buddhist lists, uh, is equanimity. Equanimity, which again is profoundly important virtue. In the four Brahma-viharas, the divine abidings, you see the Loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. And the seven factors of enlightenment. And the last one is equanimity. And I suspect that the Buddha listed it last because it's the most difficult. I think that's why. You know, being kind, being loving, being forgiving, and having energy and being patient, all these things. There's something you can do about it. But equanimity, I don't know, but there's much you can really do about it. Equanimity is what happens when you stop reacting to things. So equanimity is more of a not doing, really. There is something we can do to encourage it, and that is the chanting that we do regularly in the monastery, as you will have heard, where the wise reflection is, I'm the owner of my kamma, born of my kamma, related to my kamma, abide supported by my kamma. Whatever kamma I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heirs. And then also, as we chanted tonight, all beings are the owners of their kamma, born of their kamma, related to their kamma, abide supported by their kamma. Whatever kamma they shall do, of that they will be the heirs. And by contemplating the law of kamma, what we're doing is we're, we're helping to get in perspective what really is my responsibility. When we don't have a clear sense of what is my, where the boundary is, what is my responsibility and what is somebody else's, when we don't have this clear sense, well then we can get caught up in other people's stuff. Very easily. You can be around people who maybe they do bad things and you start feeling guilty. Yeah. Well, you don't have to feel guilty if you didn't do anything bad. But because we sometimes don't really know where that boundary is, we get so caught up in other people's dramas. And Or sometimes it's the case that we really try to help somebody. Somebody needs help and we have the motivation, we really wish to help them and we try very hard to help them but they don't want help uh, do we have that equanimity to be able to release our wanting to help? Yeah? If our offering is not being received or is not successful, then we need to release out of that. So equanimity is also a virtue that very, really much, very much needs cultivating. So also, that was only the first half of Ajahn Chah's message to Ajahn Sumato. When you have feelings of love or hate for anything whatsoever, see these as your aids and partners in building the barami and building the forces, the spiritual forces for practice. And then the second part of it is this, the Buddha Dhamma is not found by moving forward or backwards, nor standing still. This is your place of non-abiding. And so talking about the cultivation of the ten paramis is very important we we stay aware if we remember the teachings on right view, remember the, the encouragement to, to feel for any sense of me that's getting, getting off on becoming spiritual. Mm-hmm. Like I'm growing in practice. I'm developing my insight. The Buddha Dhamma is about relinquishment. In the West, as somebody was pointing this out to me the other day, that they were talking about in America how everybody's always talking about insight, getting insight, but you don't hear many people talking about relinquishment yeah. or abandonment, which is, that's the goal of practice, is letting go of our obsession with me and my way. Yes, we develop 
the parami. Yes, we develop generosity, we develop integrity, we develop uh, determination, we develop renunciation, discernment, patience, energy, honesty, kindness and equanimity. Yes, we do. But to be very careful that we're not making this into a fixed position of me who's getting somewhere. So it's, it's not going forward. It's not going backwards. And then Ajahn Chah says, but it's not standing still either. What do you do with that? If you can't go forward, you can't stand still, and you can't go backwards. I think this is, a, this is one of the most precious gifts to hear this teaching, because, because sooner or later, anybody who's really seriously committed in their spiritual life will get pushed to this point where they just don't know what to do. They feel they can't go forward. Going forward's not working. And they can't go backwards. There isn't anywhere to go backwards. You can't go backwards. And yet you feel like you can't stand still either. What do you do with that? If we don't perceive that predicament, that gift, that good fortune as something going wrong, if we don't put a judgment on it, then that intensity of frustration precipitates another quality of perception. So the absolute frustration of not not believing in the not believing in the me getting somewhere or the me getting rid of anything. And of course not being lazy. Not believing in those perceptions. And yet really committing ourselves to making effort will sooner or later take us to that uh, that degree of intense frustration. We're if, fortunate, if we're fortunate enough to remember this teaching, you know, Buddha Dhamma is not to be found in going forward, not to be found in going backwards, not to be found in standing still. But the Buddha said it can be realized. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. <laughs> Sadhu 